Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this podcast, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peterson Toscano. Welcome to episode 19 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Monday, December 25th, 2017. So glad you can join me for this month's podcast. In the art house, we hear about an artful approach to building bee habitats. Can art help save the bees? We speak with artist Emily Putoff. She tells us about an exciting project that builds bee populations in New York State. But first, I share with you a conversation I had with someone I met in Ottawa, Canada. I recently attended the annual conference of Citizens Climate Lobby Canada. Passionate and engaged climate activists from all over the country gathered to learn how to be more effective in their work. They also met with members of parliament to discuss carbon pricing. In the midst of the technical conversations and strategic planning, I also got to hear people speak from the heart. When it comes to climate action, most people find they need to be fully engaged, intellectually and emotionally. This is what stands out for me even weeks after I sat down and chatted with Marlo Firme. Marlo lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. Marlo is about to embark on a new stage in life. Marlo already has a master's degree in molecular biology. He's done cancer research. But in January 2018, Marlo will begin studies to become a high school teacher. He told me he's going to teacher's college in large part because of climate change. He has a long, complicated, and emotionally stormy relationship with global warming. I first learned about it when I was in in grade two. And I learned about global warming and CFCs on the same day. CFCs were widely used as a refrigerant and in aerosol spray bottles. And to hear about these issues, I was, I was really concerned about it. Well, first of all, I thought, okay, I'm just a kid. I, I was rationalizing in my mind. I can't do anything about this. I'm, I'm a kid. I'm just too young to do anything. And it seemed like a problem that was so far and away that I sh- don't need to concern myself with it. But I, I do remember, even as a kid growing up, I would it would still come into my mind from time to time. And then there was the whole issue of CFCs, and it seemed to get resolved by itself, at least from my perspective. So I thought, okay, maybe global warming is going to get solved by the adults, right? Ditching CFCs in our products took nearly 20 years to implement. The adults were hard at work. Government leaders listened to the scientists. Then, through ratifying the Montreal Protocol in 1987, governments and businesses began the work to eliminate CFCs. Some climate advocates suggest we can learn lessons from the Montreal Protocol process, lessons we can apply to addressing climate change. But as a boy, growing up in both the Philippines and in Canada, Marlowe did not know about the elaborate deliberations and plans to address CFC pollution. 
he just found comfort that the adults were taking care of the problem. He assumed the same would happen with climate change. For Marlowe, the most obvious climate changes he experienced were geographical. He lived in two different countries in cities with two very different climates. Manila is near the equator, so it's a very, very tropical place. There's two seasons, the wet season and the dry season. And in the wet season, there's a lot of hurricanes that pass through the Philippines. And it's generally very warm throughout the year there and very, very humid. And in Vancouver, there's the typical four seasons that we usually experience. It's a lot cooler. (laughs) And the, the weather is a lot less intense generally. And we get no hurricanes in Vancouver, right? But in 2010, during the Winter Olympics in Vancouver, Marlowe got a wake-up call. I remember we had a particularly balmy winter that year, and there wasn't enough snow to host some of the events up in the mountains. So they had to ship snow from other higher parts of the mountains down to where they were holding the events just to hold them. And... I remember feeling so embarrassed by that, personally. I, I really personalized <laughs> that, <laughs> that issue. And I remember a couple years ago, actually, there were forest fires that, that were burning around, beast, or around Vancouver. And they blew their smoke over Vancouver, and it made the sky look yellow and apocalyptic. I remember feeling so much anxiety when that happened too because I just couldn't help but make the connections between climate change and what was happening around me. As Marlowe speaks about climate change, he talks about strong feelings that get stirred up for him. Around that time, it was causing me a lot of anxiety because I would look around me at everything. And I couldn't help but make the connections to climate change. I would make connections to what people were doing or not doing and connect it to climate change. And I would see that, or at least choose to see, that people were too greedy or apathetic or too distracted to really engage with this issue. So I remember feeling a little bit alone and um, and just generally anxious about the issue. Feeling anxious, feeling alone. The topic of climate change began to fill Marlowe's imagination and conversations. Marlowe also began to feel angry. I would go to places like Costco and look around me and look at all these products the floor to the ceiling and see all these people buying all this stuff and all this plastic and I would just kind of fill up with anger about the whole thing because I just couldn't help but make the connections so I yeah I remember a a lot of anger and and a lot of isolation as well you know I would just be in my room and think about these issues but not really do anything about it. I was fearful about my future. I was fearful about the future of 
the planet. Yeah. And I could see that manifesting itself as anger or even trying to place the blame on other people. Marlowe's strong feelings even led to a conflict with his partner at the time. The topic of climate change came up one day and forced him to face his feelings. And it was a heated discussion. He ended up asking me really bluntly, why does everything have to be so bad to you? I couldn't say anything. I just shut up because it was something that I had asked myself before. I went to bed that night. I thought about his question and the thought came to me and it was that I was being hard on others because I was being hard on myself for living a privileged lifestyle and not thinking that I was doing enough about climate change. And that's where I really turned a corner and I forgave myself. Marlowe's experience and strong feelings are not at all unusual. According to Psychologist for Social Responsibility, millions of people are likely to exhibit a variety of symptoms in response to climate change's stressors. These include anxiety, post-traumatic stress, depression, interpersonal conflict and societal conflict, family stress, persistent grief, child behavioral and developmental problems and academic decline, eco-anxiety, hopelessness, and an avoidance from the awareness of climate change. Young people in particular may experience stress when they hear about climate change. This is especially true when exposed to extreme weather risks. What makes it hardest is when people feel helpless and powerless to do anything. For this reason, experts suggest that working on specific pre-disaster plans can reduce some stress for children. When faced with dire, complex situations, action is the antidote to despair. In a recent article for Grist, Christine Kalma writes about the ongoing mental health issues in the New York metropolitan area. This is five years after Hurricane Sandy. Justine highlights the mental health risks that come with these bigger storms. After suffering through one of the worst hurricane seasons in history, with hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria all pummeling parts of the U.S. this year, the country's coastal cities and territories are filling up with survivors. Since Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico, officials say the number of suicides on the island has increased, and calls to the health department's emergency hotline for psychiatric crises have doubled. A study conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that nearly one in five Texas residents affected by Hurricane Harvey say their mental health has deteriorated since the deluge. And these effects are likely to linger as the experiences of communities that weathered past storms like Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina suggest. After feeling stress, fear, and anger about climate change, Marlowe experienced some relief when he joined Citizens Climate Lobby. 
being part of a group with a specific plan and direction, this gave Marlowe hope. And I thought the approach was just amazing. And I also started to see people in a different light. I could see the good in, in everybody, really. No matter where on the issue they, they lied on. Still, Marlowe felt he needed to do more. He wanted to go deeper to understand climate change as a societal issue. I've been thinking about what the root of climate change is, right? And it's all—it's sort of like this rabbit hole. Like you say, it's greenhouse gases caused by mostly by burning of fossil fuels. And then you ask yourself, why are people burning fossil fuels? Well, I got to a point at least where I realized people aren't as connected to each other and the world as what we need to stop climate change and and I, I see it as a very psychological and emotional issue as much as it is technical I think there's a lot that people have to overcome to be able to tackle this issue and really engage with it in a way that I think is healthy. learned a lot about how climate change is connected to a lot of other issues as well and that's that's part of the reason why I want to go back to school to become a teacher because I want to get into the educational system and teach more compassion and empathy and I want that to be taught in the educational system alongside things like science and math I think that's that's really important especially in the face of climate change, that we develop those kinds of skills as well. And I also got a lot into meditation around that time, and it helped me a lot to come to terms with the issue and really approach it in a way that I thought was healthy, which wasn't always the case. (laughs) Walt Whitman wrote, I do not ask the wounded person how he feels. I myself become the wounded person. Empathy, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. When it comes to climate change, citizens in North America and Europe need so much empathy. Many of the worst effects happen to people far from those of us in these developed countries. In North America and Europe, people feel the force of extreme weather events differently. Some people suffer more than others. For some, it is harder to recover from the losses. For example, people in rental properties get displaced and find themselves homeless. There is no easy way to make up for the lost income and lost property. Hearing about the suffering of others and feeling it helps stir up empathy. Leslie Jameson in a series of essays, The Empathy Exams, writes, Empathy isn't just something that happens to us, a meteor shower of synapses firing across the brain. It's also a choice we make to pay attention, to extend ourselves. It's made of exertion, that doughtier cousin of impulse. Sometimes we care for another because we know we should, or because it's asked for, 
but this doesn't make our caring hollow. This confession of effort chafes against the notion that empathy should always rise unbidden, that genuine means the same as unwilled, that intentionality is the enemy of love. But I believe in intention, and I believe in work. I believe in waking up in the middle of the night and packing our bags and leaving our worse selves for our better one. In this time of climate change, we need political will. We need innovative ideas and solutions. We need resources, courage, and discipline. In addition, we also need empathy and lots of it. We need to tap into our better selves. And in talking to others, we need to believe in their better selves, even when we disagree about the issues. Back to Marlowe. Now that he has begun to speak directly to lawmakers, Marlowe's outlook has begun to change. He sees the humanity in these elected officials. He's beginning to understand how they can get stuck. And he's also beginning to see that at heart, they really want to do good in the world. And that's really different from how I saw them before. But... Yeah, I think that that kind of thing, it takes effort as well to to be able to see people in that way. Yeah. I'm grateful I got to sit down and chat with Marlo. In a future episode, we will dig in deeper to this topic of climate change and mental health. This is a new field that is just emerging. If you want to learn more, I have a list of links to articles and studies for you. Just go to our blog page where I put up the show notes. To do this, visit citizensclimatelobby.org. Then scroll down, and on the bottom left of that homepage, you're going to see a link to Citizens Climate Radio. Click on that, look for episode 19, and there you will find the Dig Deeper section. Now it is time for the Art House. So Einstein and Rudolf Steiner are both quoted with saying that if the bees disappear, that we'll only have four years left of life on this earth. So I feel really uh, inspired to, to try to tackle this, this subject with, with art. I love when art and science meet. At a recent sustainability conference in Cortland, New York, I met Emily Patoff. She is an artist, a sculptor to be exact. Emily also knows a lot about bees. She gave a presentation about the need to create more bee habitats. She also explained why bees matter. They pollinate about a third of our food. A hundred different crops are pollinated by bees and 85% of plants are affected by bees. So if you think back to your morning breakfast, what would that be like without bees? What would you be eating now? Rocks. Rocks. <laughs> um, why are they disappearing? There's multiple factors. There's uh, monocultures, so lack of biodiversity um, because of monocultural agriculture. There's l- lack of forage, healthy forage, and lack of habitat because of that. There's a lot of toxins in our environment that affect the bees. Um, there's climate change. So when the, the temperature goes to 70 and then it dips to 20 at night, you lose a lot of colonies because of that. And um, 
I think one of the main the main things is our own sort of distraction and disconnection from our immediate natural environment. There's a difference between honeybees and the and the bees that we're um, making art for. So honeybees live in huge colonies of 50,000 bees. They may, they're the only bees that make honey because they need that honey to overwinter for the whole colony to survive the next next winter. Now, if you're making public art, you're not going to put honey beehives in the public, right? So 50,000 bees that somebody can like go against the hive and tap on, you know, get <laughs> murdered by angry <laughs> bees. You're not going to do that. So um, we decided to focus on solitary bees. And solitary bees make up 90% of the bee population, but they, no one really notices them. So there's sweat bees and carpenter bees and mason bees and digger bees and leafcutter bees, and they're everywhere. And they're very docile because they don't have a colony or a queen to protect. They don't have resources to protect. They're really amazing pollinators, better than honeybees, because they have more hair, and they're not as efficient as honeybees. Honeybees take all that pollen, they pack it on their legs, and they zip right back to the hive. They give every bit, everything back to the hive. Solitary bees, they exist for one season, and they just want to have sex and eat some food and roll around in flowers and go from flower to flower. So they're amazing pollinators, and they're hyper-local. Uh, they only go about 250 yards from their habitat, whereas honeybees will go three miles. Emily and a student at New Paltz University were awarded a grant to work on a particular project. Our goal was to research and build bee habitat prototypes to encourage resilient pollinator communities. Um, we re researched local pollinators, habitat requirements, pollinator plants, sustainable materials, and the impact of bees and bee awareness. As she spoke, Emily projected a series of images of these bee habitats. Some of them looked like giant ice cream cones with straws packed inside. Others looked like flowers from out of a Dr. Seuss book with little holes all around them. The long tubes in the habitats each can house a bee, so it's like a bee condo. And this is an example of a solitary bee habitat. So they nest and um, they lay their eggs in these reed-like structures or in the ground and leave the cocoons there and then die for the winter and then the cocoons emerge in the spring or summer. The first step was to figure out what type of forms bees liked. They also needed to experiment with different materials, which had mixed results. We harvested some local uh, materials on campus, so that's some clay from our pond, and we realized when we were getting out of the pond, there's huge snapping turtles in, in there. Um, we won't go back. <laughs> but, uh, and then there's this big bamboo plant in the atrium in New Paltz, and we harvested that um, to make some of the reeds with. And we wanted to make really simple, simply designed and simply made prototypes because we want to eventually teach workshops on how to build your own. So we're, we were trying to design for DIY building. Using 3D printers, they began to make and test prototypes. But then... Emily took the project to the next level. In 2016, I co-founded the Hudson Valley Bee Habitat, and it's an artist collective. It's three artists, myself, Elena Sneezik, and Jen Wooden. And our mission is really to pollinate engagement with bees 
through public art and mindful arts programming. So we want to help save the bees through the arts. They took their ideas to Kingston, New York, where a new green line is being created around the city. And the green line is a rail trail network that goes through the former rail lines that uh, snake through Kingston, and it'll be turned into um, walking and biking trails throughout the city of Kingston. Eventually, it'll lead out to um, the Ulster County Trails and the Empire State Trail that Cuomo's talking about. So it's, it'll run right through there. So we are going to site bee habitats along the green line as the bee line. We're not just going to be like, show up and, hey, we're the Hudson Valley Bee Habitat. Here's your bee habitat for your community, right? Because that never works. And people don't want that. They want, they want some um, ownership over what, what goes in their community. And so a big part of our project is public engagement. One part of our programming is we're going to develop an apprenticeship program. So we want to work with local teens, um, teach them how to design and build these bee habitats. So they become the designers. They become the ones who are creating these things for the public. And we'll just be the lead artist that sort of facilitate that, that creation. I love this image of these lead artists facilitating a community art project that brings life to the region. The project is ambitious, impressive, and beautiful. It's one of those ideas that gives me hope, seeing people use their creativity, knowledge, and passion to change systems, all while building community. I want you to see these bee habitat prototypes for yourself. The Hudson Valley Bee Habitat site also has lots of information about how you can help promote healthy, solitary bee populations. Just visit hvbeehabitat.org. That's H as in Hudson, V as in Valley, and the word bee, B-E-E. So the site is hvbeehabitat.org. Org, or just Google Hudson Valley Bee Habitat. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Well, 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 we've come to the end of this episode 19 of Citizens Climate Radio, and we've come to the end of a year, 2017. Let it go. <laughs> it was a hard year for climate advocates. There's no question about it. You had to work very hard and work hard at uh, encouraging yourself and each other. And I'm grateful that you spent some of that time with me listening in to Citizens Climate Radio. This show is for you to encourage you, to help educate you to train you in being better at what you do. It's been a really great year. I'm really excited looking at the highlights of the last year where we covered all sorts of topics, climate justice, pets. We spoke about apocalypse and fear tactics. We discussed the roles that we could potentially play, advocate, rebel, helper, organizer. We even looked at uh, race driving <laughs> and, uh, and, and how a race driver is able to contribute to the climate movement. We visited several countries, including the Marshall Islands, Nepal, Panama, and Iceland. 
and we learned a lot about art, including Aaron Thier's amazing novel, Mr. Eternity. We had music by Ashley Mazanik, and we even heard some climate comedy. If you uh, haven't caught up to our episodes, we now have 19 episodes of Citizens Climate Radio. They're there for you to enjoy and to uh, share with your friends. The show is written and produced by me, Peter Santoscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Monterano, Flannery Winchester, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Perra. All the music we use in the show is licensed, unless otherwise specified. Special music for the art house includes the one suite from the 1920s collection on archive.org. I really want to thank you again for listening and be sure to share Citizens Climate Radio with your friends. Um, We're always looking for new listeners. Just look for Citizens Climate Lobby wherever you listen to podcasts. This includes iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, lots of places. Thank you so much. Have an excellent, excellent 2018. And we'll be back with more Citizens Climate Radio next month.